Let's pray as we come to God's Word this morning. Father, even as we just sung in prayer, so we now continue in prayer. We say that we stand alone upon Christ, our cornerstone. That even now that we need Him, the living Word, to speak to us by the Spirit. For without His Word, we have nothing on which to stand. And so we pray that You would make this Word effective in our presence this morning. That You would attend to it by Your Spirit. And that we might, as it were, be lifted up into heaven itself gaze upon your beauty and your goodness. In Christ's holy name we pray, amen. Mark chapter 1, verse 35. This is the holy and errant word of God. In rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. Though the grass withers and the flower fades, the Word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. As we mentioned last week, we began our faith focus on prayer. We want to do that as we enter into this new year. And as we began last week, we looked at praying by the Spirit. This week, we want to look at praying like the sun. And then next week, Pastor Kevin is going to look at praying to the Father. So we think about how do we learn to pray? How do we grow in prayer? Well, surely the chief way is to look at the life of Jesus, for He is the great model to us of how to pray. And I want to give this morning a very easy and very practical sermon looking at the Son's prayer life. Jesus Jesus' prayer life and see some ways that we can pray like Him. And uh, we'll look at that here this morning. In Mark 1, we see that Jesus rose very early in the morning. Uh, Mark gives us some insight there. He says that he, he rose and He gives a time period somewhere between 3.30 and 6 a.m. as He references very early in the morning. Jesus rose very early in the morning while it was still dark, Mark says, for one singular purpose, and that was to pray, to spend time with His heavenly Father. Jesus had had a very busy day. The day before, He had come into Capernaum, that city that would be kind of a home base for His ministry, and there in that city, He had preached a sermon. He had healed an unclean man from a spirit that had filled Him. And then he had gone to Simon Peter's house, and there he had raised Simon Peter's mother-in-law who had grown sick and was on her sickbed. And even after all of that, after what would have been a very full day, just doing those things itself, at the close of the evening, Mark tells us that the word had gone out. People had heard that Jesus was doing these miraculous things. And so they began bringing all of their sick friends and family members and those that were demon-possessed to Simon Peter's house to the door of the house. 
Mark uses a little bit of hyperbole, uh, though there's probably some truth in it, where he says that the whole city gathered at the door. That they were all there to, to have Jesus heal their loved ones, their family members, their friends. And, and we're told that after this long day, Jesus healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. He had to be quite spent when he went to bed that evening. And yet, Mark tells us that he rose very early in the morning the next day. And he rose early so that he could pray to his Father. Now, Jesus is the very begotten Son of God. He's the eternal Son of God. He has known continual communion with the Father. As the eternal Son of God, the Father indwells Him as He indwells the Father. This is what theologians call the doctrine of the perichoresis. That is, that there's a mutual indwelling of the Son and the Spirit in, uh, of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And there's a mutual indwelling of the Son and the Father and the Spirit. And in the Spirit, there's an indwelling of the Son and the Father. They all mutually indwell one another. They cannot be separated. There is constant communion in the three persons of the triune Godhead. So in His deity, Jesus has continual communion with the Father. He is also fully man. And in his humanity, he needed to pray. Jesus needed to pray. And so he rose early. This was his practice because he didn't work by magic. Jesus could not and he would not accomplish his ministry and his mission apart from the work of God's Spirit and apart from the blessing and the will of God. And so he needed to pray. And Christ, he never healed a person. He never did a miracle. He never preached an effectual sermon, and every single one of his sermons were effectual. But he never did any of those things apart from the working of the Spirit and the blessing of his Father. And so he depended upon the Father and upon the Spirit, and he models before us what it looks like. And that dependence is most clearly demonstrated in his need to pray. And if prayer was necessary for Jesus, the very Son of God, then surely it is necessary for us. I can't tie my shoe let alone do something for the sake of the kingdom that is meaningful apart from the working of the Spirit and the blessing of the Father through the Son. And that blessing often comes through prayer. Therefore, we want to be a people of prayer. So what can we observe from Jesus' prayer life? I want to do something a little different this morning than we normally do in a sermon. I just want to do a, a quick overview of a few things that marked Jesus' prayers. This is not comprehensive because we don't have the time to look at it comprehensively, but, but I think we can look at a few things that will help us to learn to pray better. 
Eight things we can learn from Jesus' prayer life, and then one thing that is unique about our prayer life from His. First, you notice Jesus prayed privately. He prayed privately. In Mark 1, Jesus gets away from people for one reason, that He might get alone with His Father by the Spirit in prayer. He needed to. He was getting ready to head into Galilee to preach and to do miracles, to heal people and cast out demons, to begin that public ministry of His. And He needed to commune with His Heavenly Father before He set out. And so therefore, He he went to prayer. And He went to prayer alone. Every introvert in this room says, Ah, amen, alone. Say to your... Your spouse, when you get home today, I just need a little time alone. Jesus needed time alone. If he needed time alone, I need time alone. The truth is, we all need time alone. We especially need time alone with our Heavenly Father. It's necessary. Jesus prayed privately. In a very real sense, we could say his entire ministry was dependent upon getting away to pray privately. Another way of saying this is that yours and my salvation was dependent upon Jesus getting away to pray privately because nothing can be accomplished in the flesh apart from the blessing of God. And Jesus knew this. Jesus instructed his disciples in Matthew 6 when he said, but when you pray... Go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. You need regular, consistent, constant, time alone, privately praying to your Father by the Spirit. Why privately? Well, for a number of reasons, I think. Praying privately, it limits distractions. You aren't busy being concerned about what other people are thinking about you when you're praying privately. We need to pray privately because there are things that you and I will not and cannot say in prayer in front of others that we need to say in prayer to our Father. You can't wrestle with God in prayer. You can't cry out to God in prayer. You won't confess your sins that you need to to God in prayer in the same way publicly that you can privately. You and I have to have times that we're just pleading with Him, just wrestling with Him, just struggling with Him. And that's not appropriate most times in public, but it is in private, just crying out to Him. But maybe most importantly, we pray privately because what we are in our prayer closet when no one is watching is what we are. We'll deceive ourselves into thinking we're fine because we play the part in public. But what I am like with the Lord alone when no one else is watching, that's the true meaning of my spirituality. Friends, There's nothing better you can do for your soul than that consistent, regular, daily time of prayer. Nothing better you can do for your soul. 
Jesus understood this. He needed it. You need it. You need it as much as has often been said throughout church history. You need it as much as breath. Jesus did. You do. How do you begin doing this or doing this better? Well, I think you set aside regular time. Jesus set aside regular time, morning after morning, where he got alone with his Father to pray. I think morning is the best time. It helps orient your day. It helps shape your mind and your affections and your will for the day. But whatever it is, make it a consistent, regular time. You say, well, I can't find the time. I love what John Piper said years ago. He said he thinks social media exists for this one purpose, to convince us that we have plenty of time to pray. I've always been convicted of a quote I read from Martin Luther, the great reformer, years ago where he said, I have such a full day, I'm going to spend the first three hours in prayer. Well, maybe you're not going to spend three hours but you can spend 30 minutes. You can spend 13 minutes. For some of us, it would be a good start to spend three minutes to pray. You may not be used to this. It may be a, a struggle for you. You just keep after it. We often see these things as a burden, and yet prayer and reading the scriptures and coming to church and fellowshipping with the saints, that, that they are means of grace that God has given to us. They're gifts. We often see them as this weight that is on our shoulders and, and we feel just, ah. And we realize after a day or two days, you know what, I haven't been praying as I was supposed to be praying. Well, it's not meant to heap guilt upon you. You realize you haven't prayed for a day or two days or three days consistently. You haven't been spending time in prayer. Then you just get right back at it. It's a means of grace. It's how He ministers to your soul and He shapes you for His purposes. It's how He accomplishes His purposes in the world. It's a means of grace. And so you realize you haven't been praying. Well, you just pick it right back up. Not restarting the wheel of this huge big thing. It's 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 his grace to you. And so you just start praying again. Or maybe you start praying for the first time. I encourage you to set somewhere aside that this is your normal place to pray. I find that, that that just helps with distractions. You know that when you're in this place at this time of the day, this is where you pray. And you just do it. And if you don't know how to pray, well, you start praying the Bible. It's a good place to start, like we did this morning from Psalm 20. You just take a passage of Scripture, just take a psalm, and just start walking through it. Change the pronouns. Jesus, most of his prayers were the Scriptures. It's the words of the psalms that are often in his mouth as he's praying in Scripture. Just pray the Bible. Second, Jesus didn't just pray privately, Jesus prayed publicly. Two great examples would be the Garden of Gethsemane in Mark 14 and then the High Priestly Prayer of John 17. 
Praying publicly is part of our Christian life because we do not live independent lives from God and we do not live independent lives from one another. We need one another in prayer. You see this in John 17 when, uh, or in the Garden of Gethsemane in Mark 14 there where Jesus, he takes these disciples away with him. He takes three of them and he asks them, he, he puts them aside there in Mark 14. He says, look, watch and pray. He wants them watching on his behalf, that is watching in prayer, that, that they are joining him as he, says, as he goes off over there to pray to his heavenly Father. He wants them praying for him. And so why he is so disappointed when he comes to them multiple times and he finds that they have fallen asleep. He needs their prayers. We need one another in prayer. In fact, Jesus' longest prayer in the Scriptures is John 17, and a great portion of that prayer that He prayed is a prayer for His people, for us. He prays for others. There's a belonging to one another, an insistence that we each lend to one another, and there is no greater assistance than to pray for one another. We pray publicly even as we pray privately. I understand you may not feel comfortable praying publicly. You say, I just haven't gotten over that hurdle. It seems intimidating. It seems scary. People will think, I can't put together words. Then you start praying privately. And one of the prayers that you pray privately is, God, help me to learn to pray publicly. And he answers such prayers. Prayer begets prayer. So you pray. And I would encourage you to start coming to different prayer meetings here. Come to our Tuesday morning prayer meeting. You don't have to pray out loud, but you can listen to other people pray. And it will inform your praying. Or you come on Sunday evenings on our our corporate prayer night that we have once a month where we just do a prayer service and you will hear other people pray. You don't have to pray out loud if you're not comfortable with it, but there are plenty that will. And I think it is one of the greatest blessings of our fellowship here at URC. I, I love our prayer meeting. I love to hear you pray. I love our Sunday evenings, especially when we have these prayer meetings and we're praying and, and the children in the pews begin to pray. I love to get together with the elders and when we are praying for you by name. I love when we meet with some of you to pray for different things that you are going through. I love when some of you come up to me and tell me what you've been praying for me or stop and pray for me. There's a few greater blessings in the body of Christ than praying for one another. As a pastor, I say, give me a church that prays above all else. Because that's a church that can accomplish great things for the sake of the Lord. Leads to our third observation about Jesus' prayer life. Jesus prayed for others. It's instructive that Jesus' longest recorded prayer in Scripture is John 17. is primarily a prayer for others. He prayed for His people, the church. 
He prayed privately, he prayed publicly, and often those public prayers were for others. And most of those prayers that he prayed were for the church, for his bride, for his people. Yes, we're to pray for all sorts of people. We're to pray for those that are in governmental positions, as Paul tells us in 1 Timothy. Jesus tells us that we're to pray for our enemies as he models upon the cross, as he prays for those that are before him. But he especially prays for his people, for his church. Because nothing good will happen in our midst apart from prayer. And so let's look at that longest prayer of Jesus's there in John 17. If you'll turn there, John 17 has often been called the high priestly prayer of Jesus. There in John 17, Martin Luther, reformer, he had this, this passage of Scripture read to him three times the night before he died. John Knox, when he was on his deathbed, asked his wife to read this part of Scripture, John 17. This is the great prayer of our Lord and our Savior. Look, he says in verse 9, he says, I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. He, he prays for his people. Now, what does he pray for them? Well, look up in verse 3. He prays for our salvation. He says this, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's the first thing he prays for, our salvation. Then second, verse 11, he prays that God would keep his people, that he would safeguard us. He makes it absolutely explicit in verse 15 when he prays, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. He's, he's praying for our protection He's praying for our safeguarding. And then in verse 21 and following, he prays for our unity. That they all may be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us. That's that perichoresis. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. Make them one. Keep them unified in love for one another. Keep their witness. And then in verse 24 and 26, he Praise that we would be with Him in glory, that we would be translated to heaven with Him. And that is a good model for praying for one another. Four things. Lord, save them. Lord, keep them. Lord, maintain their unity in love and witness. And Lord, bring them home to glory. That's a good prayer to pray for people. Save them, keep them, maintain their love and their witness, and bring them home to glory. Do we pray for others? And do we pray these kind of huge kingdom power prayers for others? Save them, keep them, maintain them, bring them to glory. Some of us neglect that the Christian life is about loving God and loving our neighbors as ourselves, and, and there's no better way to love God and our neighbor in the pew next to us and across the room from us than to pray for them. But 
Even as we pray for others, we need to see our fourth point, that Jesus prayed for himself. There are some Christians who seldom, if ever, pray for themselves. They think it's more holy to only pray for others, but that's a holiness that is absent from Jesus, which means it's no holiness at all. It's an absolute fool's errand when we try to be more spiritual than Christ. Jesus prayed for himself. You need to pray for yourself. In the Garden of Gethsemane, that most gut-wrenching prayer that the universe has ever experienced. When Jesus is upon his knees and he is drenched in blood and he's drenched in sweat, and he is crying out to his heavenly Father, let this cup pass from me. May I not have to drink the cup of your wrath. A moment that angels must have looked on with horror and silence. Jesus is praying for himself. He's praying that he wouldn't have to taste the the wrath of his heavenly Father. They wouldn't have to bear that anguish of soul. He prayed for himself. He didn't shrink from it. He didn't find it to be less spiritual. He found it to be necessary. The greatest care we can provide for ourselves is to be a man or woman of prayer. If we knew how much grace was given through prayer, we might... I think find it our favorite hobby and our favorite recreation because he gives grace upon grace to his people when they come to him in prayer. And I need his grace regularly. I I need him daily. I need to pray for my strength. I need to pray for my holiness. I need to pray for things that I am thankful for. I need to pray for passion for Christ. I need to pray that different sins would be crucified in my person. I need to ask for forgiveness of sins. I need Him. I need His provision. I need His comfort. And and He comes in prayer. And that leads to our fifth point. Jesus prays fervently. His prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane was a pleading prayer. This is something that I think previous generations of Christians knew a lot better than our generation. Too often our prayers are too tame. They lack vigor and they lack conviction. And we don't need to scream. We don't need to beat our chests. We don't need to pray every prayer in tears or screams or loud cries. But I think too often our prayers are lackluster. They're simply mouthing words with little heart and little passion in them. J.C. Ryle once noted, prayer in the Scriptures is often called a cry. It's often called a knocking, a seeking, a pleading, a wrestling, a striving. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 5, verse 7 says this. He says, in the days of the flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. Is that ever true of you? Do you ever offer up cries Your prayers with loud cries and tears. 
there ever a pleading nature to your prayers? Are you making the case before God? You're truly wrestling with Him. I will not let you go, Jacob says, until you bless me. Do you approach prayer ever like that? Many of us are bored in prayer because our prayers are boring. The same Lord that gave you the mind to think through how to pray also gave you emotions and affections to be stirred in prayer. Wrestle with Him. Cry out to Him. Make your case before Him. He can handle it. You read through the Psalms. I, I love what Calvin calls the Psalms. He says they're an anatomy of the soul. What does he mean by that? He, he means that every single part of our soul, everything that you could find that happens in our soul from anguish to despair to hope to joy to thanksgiving to, to whatever it is, he says it's there in the Psalms. And what are the Psalms? It's just a prayer book. That's all it is. It is David and Ethan and the rest of them. They're just offering up their prayers to God in song. And they are wrestling all over the place. They're pleading all over the place. They're not dry prayers. They're engaged. They're fervent. He gave us not only minds, He gave us hearts. Even as we pray for ourselves and we pray fervently our sixth point, we see that Jesus prayed for the will of God. His fervent prayers for Himself were always safeguarded by submitting them to the will of God. He, he prayed that this cup that the Father had given to Him, that the Father had decreed that He drink this cup of His wrath, He prayed that God would remove that cup. And He prayed three different times, Father, remove this cup from me. I don't want to experience this. In His humanity, Jesus did not want to experience the wrath of His heavenly Father. That was not His will in His humanity. But He submits that will to the Father. And even as He pleads, He says this, Father, if You are willing you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He knew what we must know. That we will never go wrong praying for the will of God to be done. And our Heavenly Father will never do us wrong as He accomplishes His will. Our good and His will, they are sealed together. They're, they're, they're indivisible. And so we can pray, even as we pray fervently for ourselves and we pray fervently for others, whether that is privately or publicly, we can pray, Lord, but Thy will be done. We can entrust it to Him. We can say it's in Your hands. What You will is best. But, oh, Lord, I desire this. I long for this. I want to see this happen. But thy will be done. 
I'll trust that. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Finally, Jesus prayed with confidence. He knew that as he prayed to his father, he didn't need doubt that his father was listening to him. He didn't need to shrink back in fear. He said in John 11, he said this, he said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. He knew with confidence, with confidence that His heavenly Father heard Him, that His heavenly Father always hears Him. As Thomas Watson once said, he said, prayer is the key of heaven and faith is the hand that turns it. And Jesus is the greatest man of faith that has ever lived. And so he prayed with confidence. Dear Christian, we are to have the same confidence in our praying before God. Why? Because we pray by the same Spirit. And we pray to the same Heavenly Father. The same Spirit that Jesus relied upon is the same Spirit that He sent into this world to indwell us. And the same Father that He entrusted Himself to and that He approached courageously and fearlessly and boldly and prayed confidently to is the same Father that you and I pray to. There's no difference. Do you think the Father ever turned a deaf ear to His Son? Do you think even now as the Son intercedes at the right hand of the Father and lives ever to make intercession for us, do you think He ever ignores the prayers of His Son? You can't. You can't believe that. So it's true of us. Why? Because we're made sons. We're made daughters. And we pray by the same Spirit to the same Heavenly Father. So we can pray confidently that He hears. We have union with the Son who prayed privately and He prayed corporately that He might accomplish His mission. one who prayed fervently for us, even as he prayed for himself, this one that prayed confidently and prays confidently for his people. It's he that we're united to. And we sing that, that glorious hymn, it's a uh, it's a shocking line in that hymn, and can it be? I always, there's a little part of me that just kind of, I think rightfully, kind of my stomach does a flip-flop when we sing that verse each time. And there's another part of me that just, I want to, I want to start jumping up and down and pumping fists, but I'm a Presbyterian. 
Uh, and that line where we say, bold I approach the eternal throne. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown of Christ my own. Claim that crown through Christ our own. We can boldly approach His throne. But not just boldly approach His throne, but we boldly approach His throne and we claim the crown. That should make your stomach do a little flip-flop. And it should make you want to jump up and pump your fists in the air. But we can do so because we're united to the Son. We can confidently come before this Father because we are His children. That crown is given to us because we are heirs with Christ. We are princes and princesses of the kingdom. And shall sit enthroned forevermore. You think He doesn't listen to your prayers. our final point though our prayers are unique from Jesus is in this and that we pray in his name he doesn't need to pray in another name but we have need to pray in Jesus' name he could approach that eternal throne with boldness in and of himself because he's the begotten son of God, because he was pure and without stain and without blemish. He, he could approach it and for, forever shall approach it in and of himself, but not us. The only way we can approach this throne boldly, courageously, confidently is through him. But this is the absolute shocking truth about coming to God in the name of the Son, that even as He hears His Son, so He hears us. With the same access that the Son has to that throne, we have that same access. And even as He answers the prayers of the Son, so He answers our prayers. Because the Son takes our prayers. And He makes them powerful and He makes them effective before His Father. The Father cannot turn a deaf ear to His Son. And as we pray in the name of the Son, in faith in the Son, in confidence in the Son, in the hope of the Son, in the power of the Son, it is the Son's prayers. It's His. This is, this is how we pray. We, we pray by the Spirit through the Son to the Father. It's the reverse, if you think about it, when God is acting from heaven to earth. So when He creates, God the Father decrees creation, but He creates through the Son, we are told in Colossians 1. He created all things, whether visible or invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through Him. But then you go 
Genesis 1, and you see that it was the Spirit that hovered over the waters. So the Father decrees to create, but He creates through the Son. And how does He create through the Son? Well, He creates through the Son by the Spirit. And so it's the same in salvation. The Father decrees that the Son would come into this world. The Son comes into this world, and He lives, and He dies to secure our salvation. And then the Spirit applies that salvation. The Father decrees, the Son accomplishes, and the Spirit applies. When we're moving from earth to heaven, it's just the reverse. It is by the Spirit. It is the Spirit that wells up prayers within us, as we spoke about last week. It is He who who causes them and forms them and purifies them and perfects them. And we pray through the Son. We pray in Jesus' name by the power of the Son, and the Son takes those prayers and all of His power, and He presents them to the Father. Our prayers come to the Father through the Son, and then the Father hears and answers those prayers. Truly, our act of praying is a work with the triune Godhead. Each person active in your prayers. Each one causing and shaping and perfecting and answering your prayers. How could we ever think He wouldn't answer them? That He wouldn't hear them? That He wouldn't work through them? They're His. I to encourage you to think about studying the life of Christ. Look through the Gospels and spend some time just, just looking at how does He pray? What does He pray? When does He pray? What does He pray for? Maybe you haven't prayed before or you haven't prayed much and you think, well, every time I get on my knees, it's, it's about two minutes and then I run out of things to say. Then you model on the sun. Just take the Scriptures and you open them up and you just start praying. You just start, start simply. And you cry out by the Spirit, through the Son to the Father, help me learn to pray. Grow me in prayer. Help me to to live in it, to know it, to dare to even enjoy it. Because God works according to prayer. And He wants to work in your life and He wants to work through your life for His glory. My hope is, is that we will grow as a people of prayer together. Let's pray. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. We want to exalt you and glorify you as your people. In your Son and by the Spirit. Father, we confess that none of us in this room, even the most mature Christian in this room, is not the person of prayer that we desire to be. 
moments that all of us struggle to enjoy prayer, to look forward to prayer, to even spend time in prayer. And so we pray, O oh Father, that you would teach us to pray. Teach us to pray through the Son and by the Spirit. See it less of a weight and more as a gift of your free grace. We to commune with you, our Father in heaven. And to delight in you more fully, to be shaped more according to your purposes. And to be used more readily by you in this world. That is our heart's desire. That is our cry before you this day. It is in the strong, powerful name of our Savior that we pray. Amen.